0: Welcome to CIFAS podcast on investing in energy. Today we will give you an outlook on the US energy renaissance and also discuss master limited partnerships. I'm Michael Hedstrom and I'm pleased to have with me Curie Lupus from Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Curie is a managing director and portfolio manager. He's the head of the energy and infrastructure team and oversees investing in MLPs and MLP related sectors. Curie, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you, good
0: afternoon. Let's start with the market environment. Curry, can you give us a quick review of the energy sector during 2014 and the start of this year?
1: Sure. Happy to do that, Michael. And look, I think it's fair to say that it's a bit of a tale of two cities here, with the first half of last year being very strong, and then since then uh, probably having the weakest market we had for energy in the last few decades. Now, I do think it's important to make a clear distinction between trends in commodity prices versus commodity production. So one was still hits record highs, that's production, and then commodity prices are obviously extremely weak. At the same time, I think it's very important to make a distinction in the type of commodity. So crude oil, dry natural gas, and natural gas liquids, which are the three main commodities that we have here in the U.S. So let me touch on that in more detail, and I'll start with crude oil, which obviously is getting most of the attention in the last few months. So if you look at performance, if you look at it since the peak of the the MLP market, which is what we focus on, crude oil uh, or West Texas intermediary is down about 40% uh, since that high. So what has happened? And I think I, I would describe the last few months as a completely new paradigm in the energy markets for crude oil. Really, a combination with with the emergence of the U.S. as the new swing producer, and OPEC as having a more of a standoff approach and allowing the markets to dictate where we we end up. So, really, the three steps that we had was one: production out of the U.S. really overshooting uh, in the last few years, and especially in the last few months. So, we went from five million barrels a day in two thousand a day in two thousand and eight to 9 million barrels a day, uh, over 9 million barrels a day now. Two, there was a bit of softness in demand, uh, mostly from developing nations and and partly from Europe. But more importantly, the unwillingness of OPEC uh, and and particularly Saudi Arabia to cut production and and balance uh, the market. So those were really the three main drivers in the weakness that we have had in the last few months. Now, what has happened since then? North American energy producers, uh, they have announced significant capital expenditure uh, reductions. As a result, we've seen a significant uh, reduction of recounts, oil recounts. If you look at that statistic, we're down 60% from the record levels that we had uh, in October. Now, having said that, we continue to see an increase in production. Uh, We're now approaching 9.5 million barrels a day. So, the immediate response has been from the U.S. and Canadian producer cutting back on activity. That, in our view, is, is the first step to bring the uh, market back to, uh, back to equilibrium. So that's really the case with, with uh, crude oil. Natural gas, uh, and that is dry natural gas, if you look at the, uh, the drop that we had in that commodity since the peak of the MLP market is down about 34%, that's Henry Hub. At the same time, production of dry natural gas and has remained very strong. We continue to get a lot of growth. So, if you look at the, um, the three months ending in March of 2015, production growth was eight, up 8.4% versus the same time uh, the prior year, reaching about 73.5 billion cubic feet a day. So, Strong production, low prices, pretty similar to the story in, in crude oil, which, you know, I should say the year over year production growth there continues to be over fifteen percent. And then finally, NGL, so what we call natural gas liquids. Those commodities, basket of those commodities has declined by about fifty-four percent since the peak of the market. And I think the important statistic there is their price versus crude oil. And now we're trending at about 34% when typically that price range varied between 50 to 68%. Again, production, record highs. If you compare year over year in Q1, increase in production was 14.1%. So overall, what I would say in the uh, broader review of the energy markets for crude oil, natural gas, and natural gas liquids is record high production here in the United States. At the same time, softness in prices, which if you think about it, at the end of the day, price is a combination of supply and demand. And and obviously, we're having a lot of supply coming out uh, out of the U.S. Thanks for that backdrop and overview. What have been the
0: implications to each part of the energy value chain as a result of the decline in the price of
1: oil? Uh, Not surprising, the hardest hit names have been energy producers, or what we call upstream or EMP, exploration and production. They own the resources, so they're obviously directly exposed to the volatility in the commodity price. And that index of the EMP index is down over 30% since the peak in uh, in crude oil. Energy infrastructure, uh, or midstream, which is what we focus on, and mostly structured as MLPs, master limited partnerships, uh, has done better. These are assets that are exposed to volume as opposed to price, but nonetheless they have sold off as well, down about 12.6% since the peak in in crude oil, uh, partly by association, partly because of fears that production growth will not be will not be as strong. Uh, And then finally, downstream, which is the big energy users like refiners or or chemicals or utilities, they actually have done better, uh, not surprising, given that they use commodities as inputs. Uh, So refiners, since the peak, they're actually up 1.8 percent, chemicals sort of flat, and utilities, again, flat. So the closer you are to the well, the more you have sold off during this uh, weakness, in certain cases, I think the uh, sell-off has been unwarranted, as in, as in the case of infrastructure, given that it's a volume business. But overall, clearly, all indices within the value chain have certainly have sold off. And what's your team's view on the
0: outlook for the price of
1: crude oil and for energy
0: infrastructure over the long term?
1: Sure. I mean, look, I think first it's important to point out that energy infrastructure assets in the United States... Are mostly natural gas related. So we tend to look at crude oil as the headline number for the broader energy sector. But when it comes to energy infrastructure and MLPs, it only really touches 35% of the index. And even that 35%, they don't own crude oil. They own crude oil infrastructure. So, so I think it's important to make uh, that, that distinction. Now, if you look at our expectations on the price of crude oil, I think we are working through the excess supply issues now with cutbacks in rig activity. The way we look at demand growth, which tends to grow by about a million barrels a day, and the way supply is going to come down, not only here in the US, but also in the rest of the world, because even though that part of the world is not as transparent, what we are seeing is lack of investment to maintain production flat. So I do think the rest of the world is actually, and outside OPEC and the U.S. is suffering the most that just not spending money for future production. So you combine all that and in our view, uh, the world will be imbalanced sometimes towards the end of this year or early next year. And by 2017, we would have shortages in supply, the way we look at the math, the required prices to meet that demand based on geology and, and economics comes to about $80 for Brent, and, and I'm talking about 2017. I think you know, the way that that doesn't materialize is that if the cost curve overall shifts to the point that what needed 80 it needs less, and we are seeing about 20% drop in costs across the whole chain. Uh, So that's something to keep in mind. People tend to ask, what are the break-evens here in the US? There's no one magic number. Uh, It depends on the basin and the geology. And within each basin, there's a lot of variation in economics. But what we are seeing is a pretty significant, as I said, 20% drop in costs, uh, which not surprisingly, even though recount is coming down, production continues to, to increase. So I would say in summary, we expect the crude oil market to be back in equilibrium sometime towards early next year. And as demand grows, we, in our view, we need $80 Brent in 2017 to, to balance. I'm pretty simplistic in my view, in the sense that the world needs 93 million barrels a day. Uh, and that demand grows by million barrels a year. It's a pretty inelastic uh, market. And in that overall equilibrium, about 10 million needs to come from the U.S. And that's why, you know, to your question around energy infrastructure, the way we look at it is if things work out the way they have done, the U.S. will need to be somewhere between 9 to 10 million barrels a day and maintaining that market share. That's why we like energy infrastructure. We're exposed to the volume side of the business. And we think that long-term remains unchanged. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, what matters for MLPs and infrastructure is volume, which implies cash flow, which implies distributions to unit holders. And in our view, distribution growth from energy infrastructure MLPs over the next few years should average between 7 to 8%, which is still down from the 10% that we got last year, uh, but still a pretty healthy number, combined that with a 6.1% yield that the uh, index is trading at on a market cap-weighted basis, uh, we can still see double-digit type of returns over the next few years for the sector.
0: Another question that we often get is, what are some potential benefits of using a closed-end fund to gain exposure to MLPs?
1: No, that's that's a fair question, and I can tell you, uh, obviously, here uh, at GSM, we manage different kinds of products, and, and I can compare and contrast. And one important thing to point out is our philosophy when it comes to managing MLP closed-end funds, which is we uh, look at it in a way like managing a company, and a company with a mandate of investing in underlying MLPs that deliver consistent dividends that grow. So our priority is to be able to deliver predictable distributions to our investors that grow over time. And I think in order to get there, the structure of the closed-end fund is probably the most appropriate in being able to deliver that. Why? One, in a way, you have permanent capital, so you don't have to worry about redemptions in how you invest, uh, especially in volatile, volatile times like this. Two, you have the ability to use leverage. And by managing that leverage amount, uh, you could obviously increase the income that you deliver to uh, to your end investor. Thirdly, you could use private investments, uh, things like pipes, which are private investments in public equities, to get better entry points into public MOPs at cheaper discounts than than what the market is offering, and, and as a result, again deliver. A better income profile to, uh, to to the end investor. So overall, I would say for the investor that is looking to find high predictable income that grows over time, the MLP closed-end fund structure is a good way to uh, to get there.
0: Thank you, Curry. We appreciate your insights and uh, for being with us today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. You can find out more about the Goldman Sachs closed-end funds on cifa.com where we also have a link to the Goldman Sachs website. This concludes our podcast.
1: Thank you for listening and have a great day.